I mean, it's like when someone said, oh, I'm sorry, you must be going through a lot. Fuck you. You have no idea what I'm going through. I've, I've put my life on hold to take care of people who probably didn't even deserve for me to take care of them because they probably were a bunch of assholes to me when I was younger. But I just felt that was the humane thing to do. Roger Perry, how are you? Hi, thank you for having me. Of course, this is so cool. We came from, for anyone listening, we have, uh, we're in the real estate industry together. We've known each other for quite some time and this came up and here we are talking anything but real estate right now. That's right. That's okay. I'm happy to do. (laughs) Unless you have a passing relative and you want to give us one of your listings. No, you know what? That's okay. This is not about that. (laughs) But if you're looking, I'm kidding. (laughs) There we go. Uh, So Roger, thank you for being here. And I know we kind of just touched on it. You mentioned 11 years ago, you lost your, it was your mother and your stepfather? My stepfather, correct. So very close together. Yeah. Five months apart. And what happened? So my mom had a stroke in 2005 and she was paralyzed for six years and I took care of her for six years. Uh, and then she had a brain hemorrhage and went into a coma to the point of where it was just, there's no coming back. So we took her off the support and then she naturally passed. How does that decision happen? Is it the doctors just approach you or is it a decision you made on your own? Well, they, they, the doctor approached and showed us on a, a CAT scan that there was just her, her brain was bleeding and there was no turning back at this point. So there was, there was no savior. Right. Well, I mean, so how, how long was the process from when you, you kind of took her off and then she actually passed? It was about just under two days, I would say. Okay. So, but I sat with her for all those days. And what is that process? Because that's kind of that's a, it's a unique scenario. I had I posted something about one of uh, one of my prior episodes with the hospice nurse, and she mentioned something about having some set of closure. You know, it's a unique situation where not a lot of people, actually, a fair amount of people, I'm sure, but lose someone, and you know, they're expecting to die, and obviously, there's people that lose someone unexpected. So it's kind of a different process that she's still alive, and you have to, and you know, she's going to die. Is that comforting in any way, or does that make it harder? At that point, you just want them to have peace, especially a six-year run was brutal. Uh, you're a little torn because it's, you've, you've invested six years of your life with hopes that you can get this person's life back. And when you're there, you're like, well, maybe they'll make a miraculous comeback. Like You have these visions when you're sitting bedside that they're going to wake up and be like, oh, I'm out. I'm fine. It's like this miracle, like you see on the Lifetime Network television special. But it doesn't work that way. But you have these images in your head, these scenarios that just you imagine. And um, and then on the other hand, you're, you know what? We've been doing this. I'm tired. I'm exhausted. You're going to be a vegetable. Where where do we go from here? Yeah, I mean, I, th- I feel like it's, it's tough to always say what the right decision is. But if, if I was in those shoes, I'd like just. Let me go. I, I did not make the decision. My stepfather made the decision to take her off the support. He said he wanted that decision to go with him, but it had to be made. Yeah. And those decisions come sometimes. So those six years when you were taking care of her, what was her, where was she? How was she, how cognitive was she there or was she not there? She was there. Six years of taking care of a stroke survivor, depending on the level of how it hit, hit them, is, is especially when they're paralyzed, is just brutal. I cannot even 
articulate to you how horrific it is, not only for a caregiver like myself, but for the patient. It's they cannot walk, they cannot go to the bathroom on their own. It is being alive and having your life taken away from you. So you are completely dependent on everybody just to just to live your life, just to just to function. Yes, the it's those situations. Obviously, everyone, if you feel bad for the person that's going through it, but the burden of the people around that person that carries a weight with you forever, let alone six years. Yeah, it's you know it scars your soul, and to watch somebody that you care about is uh, it, it it never leaves you. Eleven years later, you're still talking about it, and I'm emotional about it. Is it is it hard to? not see the person that way. You know what I mean? It's like, you have to, I'm sure you have, you have all the years prior to that to remember her by who she was. But when you say it scars you, does it, does it kind of fog the memory of who she was at all? Or you look past that? Well, it's a dual personality almost. When she had the stroke, she became a different person. Before the stroke, she probably made a lot of mistakes as a parent and which I'm, you know, which I'm working on on my own internal self because of that. But you have pity for somebody who's been hit with someone like something like that, and two different people. But I, I remember her both ways, and I try to give pity, you know, posthumously give her that pity. Well, the reason I asked you in regards to what her state of mind was because I was curious if there was any ever dialogue with her. I feel like when something like that happens, maybe the thought of she may be passing comes more prominent in the mind. So was there any kind of dialogue about that or you kind of just took care of her and made your way? I, I, I use humor. I mean, yeah, I know. <laughs> when, when, the, when there's, and anything gets too serious, mm-hmm. I always revert to humor. And uh, she would tell me, actually, I would do therapy with her every day, physical therapy, which I learned from therapists. And I, would, I was determined to get her to walk again she was paralyzed. And when she first had the stroke, you sit her up, she would just plop back down. She couldn't even sit up on the edge of a bed. So the fact that she sat up, the fact that she was able to walk with a cane, a a prong cane, I'm sorry, a four-prod kind of cane, that was a big advancement, if you will. But uh, when I would do the therapy, she she had such a pain syndrome that she would actually beg me to give her pills to kill her. She wanted me to kill her. And I would say, yes, I'll kill you. I'll take care of it. I'll call Carol, my sister. I'll have her cook for you. And that should take care of it. (laughs) (laughs) And then she would start laughing. (laughs) And that was my only way around it. And then I would take her to get her mind off things. I would take her for dinner. I uh, I would take her and my stepfather for dinner on Wednesday nights or whenever it worked. And I would take her out all day Saturday. So I would drop everything, take her out, take, take her to the Grove, take her to a mall, buy her clothes, whatever, just to make her feel. I'd help. I learned how to put makeup on <laughs> to a certain extent. I mean, not like, you know, like the drag queen makeup that Kardashians do, but, you know, like just regular makeup to make her feel like a human being. And then we went out in public and she felt human, even though she was dead on the, on the right side of her body. And where, how are you doing? Like, where were you doing that process? I was ready to kill myself. It's horrific. You have no idea how it is to be a caregiver if you have not lived it. I mean, it's like when someone said, oh, I'm sorry, you must be going through a lot. Fuck you. You have no idea what I'm going through. I've, I've put my life on hold 
to take care of people who probably didn't even deserve for me to take care of them because they probably were a bunch of assholes to me when I was younger. But I just felt that was the humane thing to do. Yeah, and that takes, I mean, that says a lot about you to do things when under certain circumstances with viewpoints, like you just said. And during that process, do you feel like you had to grieve before, like before she passed? It was like, the, you think the grieving process started early in any way because of the trajectory she was going or it wasn't even a thought? I mean, authentically, I just wanted them to both die. I couldn't handle it anymore. I couldn't, it was just killing me. It, it killed my soul is what it did. It, it, it really killed me. It, and I'm still trying to like get back, you know, get my full authentic self back. How do you mean? Uh, meaning it, it takes the, the joy, the, what is it? The, the French expression, the joie de vivre, mm. the, the joy of life out. It's like you, there's like a certain essence that you have, this joy for living, this, this, this yearning to, to experience and travel and live and just get what, you know, it just kills it. It yeah. just, it's like a flame that it is put out. So it's like I keep trying to ignite that flame and I'm on the low setting. I'm trying to get it back up to the high setting so I can start boiling over a little. Yeah, I guess when you see, when you witness something like that, it kind of, it gives, it shifts your perspective on life, especially, you know, if, if you, even if you're living a happy-go-lucky life and something like that happens, it kind of gives you a check of reality and just, I can see that it just dampens the flame. So what do you do? Is there anything you're doing right now to try to get that flame back consciously? Well, sure. I'm, well, I do therapy. Uh, absolutely. Does that work? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, if you have a good therapist, uh, it's like if you have a trainer. Yeah. You go to your trainer, what, one, two, three times a week, but you also want to work out the other two or three days a week to practice what they teach you. Mm. So I do my own reading. I do my own meditation. I do things that help me. Uh, they're exercises. And they help. They're, they're getting me back to who I am and who I was. At the same time, you said your father-in-law passed five months after? Or My so? stepfather. Stepfather, sorry. Stepfather. Yeah, he was not the easiest man to deal with, but I took care of him as well. He had cancer, and um, his vision was going, and I took care of him. I took care of both of them to a certain extent. He was self-sufficient to a certain point, but he had illnesses that later put him into hospice care. And the, the, the uh, physician suggested I keep him in 24 hour, almost like assisted living care. And he hated it. So I brought him back to his house and I had two 24 hour males as caregivers to, and I had him taking care of him. So just to, to, and it lasted probably a couple of weeks. He just couldn't, he didn't want to go on after my mom passed. He just didn't want to go on. He had no reason to go on. Yeah, and that was kind of part of the, the next, not question, but thought. I've, I've heard you hear so many times when someone loses a partner, especially at a certain, a certain age, let alone having cancer, there is that reciprocity of having meaning for life, and then all of a sudden you lose someone, then they go shortly after. So I was curious to think if that's what you thought. was. Obviously, he was sick, which is obviously a big pill of it, but when you lose someone like that, I wonder how much the decline exponentially increases after a loss of a loved one. Did you see that? Oh, yeah, absolutely. So that's real. It was just like it all happened just so quickly. And he had to have a surgery and the surgery hurt him. And I told him not to have the surgery, but that's what he wanted to do. And that just put him in a really bad spot. And 
you know, he was not the kindest man, but that's a different story for a different podcast. Yeah, <laughs> we, don't have to, we don't have to get into that. I and mean, that, that, that complicates it, though. When you, have, when you have people that are in your life when you're close with them. And you know, I, I always think about it when you see the eulogies at funerals. And the eulogies are, you know, 10 times out of 10, maybe 99 out of 100, are always like, you know, uplifting as they should be and positive, highlighting this person. But there's so many dynamics in people's relationships. When someone dies, they're not always the best person. Not talking about your stepfather, just in general. So it's interesting to see when someone, like you just said, that there's maybe, is there some complications there? We don't have to get into it, but there's some. Well, he was just, as far as what, the way he. I'm just saying you said he was difficult. It was difficult was it well, in regards he, to your relationship or no? Well, I mean, he was abusive. He was. Oh, fuck. Yeah. Okay. I mean, it was just. It, the fact that I took care of them, they were abusive in their own ways. But the fact that I took care of them knows that I makes me a better person. Yeah. And sometimes you struggle with the fact that why should I take care of you? What did the way you treated me, the way you you, you abused, the way you uh, just the emotional damage that you did, and then I'm supposed to take care of you. Why did I do that? And I think to myself and. I think what happens, it's psychological. I think that it's almost like you idealize, and this is stuff I'm learning through my readings, is you idealize this your, your parents and there's this fantasy relationship that you create. And the fact, you know, it almost becomes a, uh, that, you know, you depend on each other. But I didn't need them. But I just, and I also felt guilty. There were so many different elements that led me to take care of them. And now in retro, I mean, of course, everything in hindsight is twenty twenty. But I think I probably still would have taken care of them because I'm just a good person. But they probably didn't deserve it, especially someone like myself, you know? Yeah, that complicates. I mean, especially going through, it's enough to take care of someone when they're passing. Like I said, I have no understanding of it and never experience that of just the pain you have to go through just to take care of someone kind of layered onto that dynamic what you're talking about i i, I can't imagine what that does and i feel like that that's that's got to sit with you moving forward clearly and you said you felt a level of guilt that was another thought i had in regards to afterwards what were what do you remember the feelings afterwards because i feel like was there a sense of relief in many ways because it was you don't have to take you weren't going through that anymore oh absolutely and did that get stacked with more grief like what what because i i People talk about the five stages of grief, and one guest I had, and I've said this many times for those of you listening again, how the five stages of grief don't always come in order. It comes kind of sporadically. Right. It's not just like it's not linear. So do you recall what your your initial feelings were shortly after? No specific timeline, but after the relief, I guess that might be the first one. It was relief. It was a little bit relief. Like, okay, I don't have to be here to cook meals, to, to put medication together, to change a diaper, to, it was like, okay, I can get back to my life now, somewhat. Uh, and that probably sounds terrible to me, but I think once you're living through that for several years, how about you do, God forbid you have to do that, but if somebody does that, let me know how you feel after that, Mitch. Yeah, no, it doesn't you know sound, I mean? yeah, it <laughs> Then does we'll not, talk. It doesn't sound terrible. I think if you think about it logically, I mean, I think that's only natural. And that's part of, I think, when going through anything in life, it's, it's easy to say, oh, maybe that sounds bad, this or that, but no one knows what you're going through. Even, and I've said this again in multiple podcasts and recently with just my buddy when we were chatting, you never know what someone else is feeling no matter what the situation. Even if you've experienced something similar, you don't know 
you can't say, oh, I understand. Right. It's, it's hard. Like you want, I think people might want to say that thinking it's comforting when sometimes it's not. In certain cases, like, you know, you don't know. Because yeah. there's millions of other people that also lost a father like I have, even on 9-11. And so there's camaraderie there, but you, you still don't know what the other person is going. There's so many different angles and avenues of where they are in their life. Like you had different relationships with the people you lost. Right. So that affects your process. And so to say, when someone pinpoints someone, oh, that's, how, how do you, that's terrible to say, that's terrible to feel, but you just... You can't, you can't relate, so it's, you can't say this is wrong or right. And I think what I'm getting at is whatever you feel is, is what it is, and that's, I think that's natural in itself. Right. You know? I think everyone, like you said, everyone's relationship is different. And you just, if somebody has been through death or what have you, you just, they just want to be seen and heard. There's nothing you can do really to comfort them. Just be there and let them vent and release because uh, there's no rhyme or reason to how they manage their their grieving process. Did you find yourself isolated, or did you did you cope with that being wanting to be heard and speak to people? Like, what was your process? Either after now, I know you said you have therapy. Eleven years later, I don't know when that process started, but did you find yourself inward or outward with your expression? Oh, inward, very inward, oh, completely inward. I was, you know, I've always been that person who's always afraid to let anyone see behind the facade you know it's and you know you always want to come across as this perfect and it's somewhat narcissistic but maybe this is also something from my childhood it's I was always afraid to fail my parents or be imperfect to them or have something that can be called out as imperfect like because I didn't want to be a failure in any aspect of my life and if somebody saw me weak then they'd be like you know Roger's weak because he and that was just how I thought but it's normal it's, there's nothing wrong with that. You, you, no one's perfect. No one will ever be perfect. There's no such thing as perfect. And you have to let people s see your vulnerability so they can at least be in the room with you. If you're going to have a cry, if you're going to break down and have a complete meltdown and scream your fucking head off, just someone to sit there and be like, I got it. I'm here. Scream your fucking head off. Cry. Here's a tissue. I'll be right here. You know, I handle, you know, that's taught me how to be a better parent to my kid, my kids. You know, my daughter's having a meltdown as a toddler. What am I going to do? Tell her not to have emotions? No, it's okay. Have the emotions. I'm here. I'm not going anywhere. When you're ready to calm down and talk, I'm going to be sitting right here. It's beautiful. I think there's a perfect balance there because I feel like as a society, it's always, it's like, you don't, not entirely, but you don't want to be vulnerable. You don't want to show your feelings. I think it's weaning off this day and age. I feel like if like people are almost being too much now, I feel like there's a boundaries of like, you should be vulnerable. That's the whole premise of this podcast. So I agree. I think if you feel something, you should feel it. You, know, you don't have to hide it and bury it. It's only going to screw you up later on. But I think by the idea that thinking that make people think that makes you look weak, which I think is a pretty popular premise. Like, oh, that person's feeling emotionally must be weak. But no, I think, it takes strength to do that. And then with that strength, that's how you kind of get through it. So I think it's kind of like a double-edged sword of a misconception thinking you're weak for showing your feelings. Like we're all, we're all, we're all human. We all have these feelings. Some maybe have a different sensitivity to it, but it is important to let that out. And so with you being inward, is that part of your process now of letting that out? Has it taken some time? Uh, no, I'm more, I'm probably becoming more outward with my feelings now and not so... I, I don't care if somebody thinks I'm not perfect anymore because I've, I'm coming to terms. I'm not there yet. 
I'm coming to terms. I mean, look at the people watching on YouTube. You see this, like, look how good this guy looks. I'm actually putting my hat on. I'm like staring. I'm listening to you, but I'm looking at my hair. I'm like, I can't even see my hair. I'm like, it's probably a mess. I'm throwing my hat on. Con- continue okay. on. We'd be happy you have it. I'm Mine's, mine's leaving. It, it looks great. So well, you're making me self-conscious here. Okay. That's okay. Uh, let's try that again. What the hell were we talking about? Yeah, uh, We're talking about, uh, if, oh, you know what? It's, it's letting people see who you are is not a bad thing. And, you know, the facade is is pointless. It's, I I think it's hard to live and I'm learning this recently is it's hard to live authentically and really be fully vulnerable unless you let people see that, you know, and the more I'm doing this, I see the more people are more vulnerable with me years ago or even, even one year ago, people would, friends of mine, friends, they're distant. They're afraid to admit to me of things that they've done thinking that I would judge them for being reckless or imperfect or human, you know, and they wouldn't admit it to me. And I'd find out through somebody else like, Oh, I wonder why they didn't talk to me about that. And I think it's because I'm not vulnerable and I am not showing that. And not only am I hurting myself, but I'm hurting my friendships. I'm hurting my relationships, whether they be with my sibling or friends or or my spouse or what have you, or my kids, you know, you can't let these things just block you off from the world. You just have to have your emotions. Perfectly said. It's so it's so much easier said than done, but I think it's easy by theory. It's so uh, I don't know. It's so much more work to have this facade and not be yourself. Because once you just let go, I'm still. I feel like I'm myself in many ways, but there's still certain avenues. I'm not, I still feel like not that I'm pretending to be anyone, but I just sometimes am a little reserved. Even though you might say differently, knowing me, but I, I, it's something like. It's like when you, this might be a terrible analogy, so sorry guys, but if you see someone naked for the first time, there's always that innate like, holy shit, you're naked and this is what you got, okay? But then after that, it's like, okay, you're still naked and that's it. Yeah. It's like, you, it's, I feel like there's that one little moment of showing yourself and then everyone sees that that's the hard part is doing it. And then after that, it's like, oh, this wasn't, this yeah. is not so bad. Yeah. You know, and we have these pre these preconceived notions of how people are going to perceive us. And I feel like more often than not, sometimes you're right, but more often than not, we're, we're wrong. Like if you ever like walk into a place and you, maybe you're feeling a little insecure and you're thinking, oh, that person's looking at me. They probably think, oh my God, it's probably my shirt. You know, that person's probably looking across and you're noticing the Bob Dylan poster behind you. It's like, they're not even right. talking or thinking about you. Right. Sometimes they are, but I think we just, we create so many of these ideas that most likely aren't even true. And we're stressing ourselves even more when we don't have to. And it all comes back to just letting it go and being vulnerable. Right. But then sometimes you got to be tough, you know, like within what that vulnerability, you got to be tough. So I think in certain moments, I think I, at least the way I come out of it's the East coast Italian thing of me. Like I, I'm got, I've gotten way more comfortable of being outward and expressing myself and letting people know how I feel. But then with that, I got to like top button my tie and like yeah. stop being a pussy. Sorry for saying that, but like, you yeah. know what I mean? So I think that comes with the balance, but if you, you're carrying a weight when you're just keeping shit inside. Well, I don't think it's, being vulnerable, invulnerable as much as just being authentic and just yes. being like, you, you know, it's being truthful. Like I, this is who I am. David is who David is. Rogers who Rogers. It's not like, don't come across as, Oh, Roger, the realtor or David, you know, the podcast guru. You know what I mean? It's not like you're, you're not this entity. You know, you don't want to be afraid to put on these lies and this facade that you can't keep up with because that's where you start 
losing your authenticity and your vulnerability. And then you were like, okay, well, I can't let anybody in because now I've said, I've lied about these things just to keep up my facade. Yeah. And I can't really be myself mm. because if I slip, somebody's going to know the truth about me. Interesting. I mean, it just, it takes you into different areas, which is interesting. Yeah. There's so many different pathways. And does this all relate to your process of, obviously it does, but your your grief process, your your healing process thereafter to where you are today is that is that part of it? Where you, like were you saying you think you were holding your true feelings of how you processed your loss? Like were you hiding? You were just hiding how you felt, and and you were projecting something different. But yeah, but you know, yeah, I was. I, I went to my mother's funeral. I went in the next day to work, like nothing happened. I got into my office, I closed the door, I started crying. No one ever saw me cry. Why? Who am I hiding from? What am I, what was I afraid of? That someone's going to see that he's broken? What the fuck is wrong with that? There's nothing wrong with being broken. It's okay. We're human. I'm broken. I admit it. You know, you're broken to a certain extent. You know, the guy next door, I, you, you, you show me somebody who's not broken I, I will call you a liar <laughs> because that's not true. We're all broken in some way. We all have some trauma from the past. Death is a trauma. Relationships with some, our relationships with our parents could be trauma with relate from a marriage or from something that has caused this trauma. And yeah, you hide behind this facade and, or at least I did. And, and that's, that's unfortunate that I programmed myself to be that way. That's what it is, the program. We're literally pro we're computers, literally programming. Yeah. How do you... Reprogram? Yeah, how do you... I mean, there's, multi, there's multiple... Cause I, I feel like I've read up and, and studied certain ways of doing that, but like, it's still... I, I think it's so many ways to do it. Yeah. For you, are you... Do you feel like you have reprogrammed or you're in that reprogramming process? Oh, I'm in the process. And I'm definitely in the process. And it could take you a lifetime. Mm -hmm. It could take you... A year, it could take you. What it just depends how much work you're doing and how well you're following it. You know, I always think about it like I don't know if you've ever seen the movie The Matrix. Of course. And the guy's getting his ass kicked by all these agents. You know, the guys with the black glasses, and and then at the end of the movie, towards the end of the movie, they shoot him. They finally catch him and they shot him. And then he wakes up and he sees the Matrix. And he's, then he can maneuver through the matrix. And those guys come and they start trying to beat him. And he's just like, and they're like going at super speed. And he's just like blocking. He's just slow motion. That's a great Like scene, it was yeah. nothing. And it was like, I think some people have to be shot down, whether it be losing somebody, to see the matrix, to see what's, why am I acting this way? Uh, whether you ruin your marriage, whether you lose somebody in your family, whether whatever the trauma is, Something has to wake you the fuck up so that you can see the matrix and say, I need to do this shit to myself so that I don't fall into a depression or into this facade or into whatever or into a habit. It could be a drug habit. It could be a, a compulsion of sorts. You have to release it somewhere because if you don't, it will be released in negative ways, whether through anger through an addiction, through something, but there has to be some release somewhere. So might as well just let it all the fuck out now. And that's the, I think that's, that's the antidote right there. Being authentic and vulnerable, whatever the hell you want to call it, it is a release. 
we're kind of we when you carry that energy and it sounds woo woo to everyone, but there is that energy that we keep inside, and that's what fucks us up. Whether you said through anger or even disease and and all these other factors, it's so important to let it go. And I, I always I brought this up many times, but I feel like I wonder how much of that bottled up energy causes us causes those. Uh, this isn't a biology podcast, but how much of that not releasing affects you physically, not only mentally. And so important to let it go. And it might not happen in a week or two months. It might happen 40 years down the road when something happens to you. And it, you never know if it's because of that trauma. And, you know, we, we talk about eating healthy and all these other things. But there's one, the first chapter in the book, Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell, always stuck with me. There's so much of that book I don't remember. I'm not sure if you read it. But the first chapter, and if I'm giving a horrible anal- uh, synopsis, let me know. But there was this Italian, uh, like Italian community that migrated, I think, to the, somewhere to the States. And they were by themselves in the village and they ate like they didn't eat anything all what Italians were high cholesterol stuff like salami whatever the hell they were eating and that whole community like no one was dying of like disease or of uh, dying young and then the next village over people were you know passing for whatever reason and they're trying to figure out why this village from people that were migrating from the same areas why they survived and others didn't and through, through their studies the, I guess it's not a full conclusion but what they found was this community was living they were living together. They were taking care of each other's kids. They were living in harmony. They were living peaceful. They had a real community and it didn't matter what they ate. And this isn't health advice. So talk to your nutritionist, but the whole premise, what I'm trying to say is the way they live, stress-free, no drama. It, it wasn't so much highlighting uh, you know, what they put in their bodies, but how they lived their life. And the other cultures, they were eating the same foods, but they weren't living the same in the same community. So my point is, I think the way we live our life, when we release this energy, when we live in harmony, be ourselves, do good by other people, I feel like that's better than having the apple in the morning. Right. And right. It's, it's so powerful. And once again, maybe I don't know what the hell I'm talking about, but, but I, I think that carries a lot of weight. And what the process you're in right now is, it's going to carry on to your kids. You know what I mean? Like the, the way that what you're learning, you're going to pass on to your kids. So it's generational even. You know, you try to break the cycle if it's, if it's not healthy, you know, if it's unhealthy, you, you just want to realistically just, or ultimately we want to break the cycle. Some people don't because that's how we're programmed. And with trauma, with loss, what we do is, and I know I had done, I had done this, is I was press, you know, you shove it all down, all these emotions. And this is, goes with a lot of emotions that we do. We just keep shoving it down. And, and I think because we're both in real estate at some point, you know, you, it's like a sewer line. The sewer line gets all the crud and you got to get a sewer cleaner to get in there to get, to get the pipes clean, right? Otherwise you'll have a backup. And if you have a backup, the sewer line's going to, and it's going to find another way out. So that's the best analogy because you have all the shit that you just push into your sewer line, into your, your, um, uh, ulti- your, your, your proverbial sewer line, yeah, if yeah, you will. Not and, literal shit. And then you, you will act, it'll find another way out. And, and, and you'll act out somewhere. So dealing with death, dealing with loss, dealing with trauma is the best recommendation is don't be embarrassed. Deal with it immediately. Let that first year of the loss, whatever time you need, to don't, don't try and be strong. Don't try and be, just be, just feel. Don't lose your authenticity because the minute you do that, you change. But, you know, you look at older, older people and, you know, when you see an old codgery person, they were not like that 40 years ago. Something happened in their life between the ages of 40 and 80 or 85 that caused them to be like that. And it's life and it's trauma 
and it's loss and it's whatever it was that they've pushed down and never learned how to deal with it. That's why that sewer line is sticking with me. Now every time I go to an inspection at my properties, I'm like, that's life. You should have cleaned that shit up here. You should have cleaned that shit. You would have a $40,000 request for repairs. That's right. No, that's, that's, it's so true. It really, it's like we kind of hatched on a little bit, but it's going to show up somewhere else. So you got to deal with it now. And I think a lot of it is just, that's the one thing I have learned from a lot of my guests that have experienced loss. That, that is a, the one constant is you got to, you got to feel it. But it takes, probably, it takes time. Sometimes it might take years to figure it out. And I always hoped that through these conversations, some people that haven't gone through trauma, even though we all have in many ways or haven't lost someone specifically, they can learn through our experiences or other people's experiences before it happens to them. And I hope that offers some help. But at the same time, like you said, some, some people just need to be slapped, punched in the face. And that's the only way we're going to realize. So I don't know how much weight these conversations will have, but hopefully it preps people for if and when it does happen. Um, so I think that's really good advice and and that's what it's all about. So to kind of cap it off, how are you feeling today, 11 years later? Listen, we're works in progress. And if you don't think you have work to do, then you should just die. <laughs> <laughs> you just go find a grave, lie in it, and wait to die. Because I think as human beings, we need to evolve, and we need to learn, and we need to learn how to deal with trauma, how to teach our kids and our the next generation how to deal. We always say we have to teach our kids to be strong. Yeah, yes, we do. But we also have to teach them to not be strong and to be emotional and to be um, vulnerable. And... That's one thing I regret not doing is feeling. And now I'm learning how to feel. And I have to tell you, it is not easy. No, it kind of sucks. It, it's a, it is fucking work. Yeah, it's that, there's that external pain, that <clears throat> internal pain, the internal pain. I mean, like I've never had, I've had some injuries, in my, some fair injuries in my life. The internal pain is just, if it, never, it, never, it feels like it's never going to go away. Like when I, when I broke my hand, broke my elbow, like, I feel like oh, this pain's eventually going to subside without me doing anything naturally. But that pain on the inside, it's like, oh my God, it just feels like it's never going to end. This isn't parenting in 101, but at what point do you think is a good time to give your kid like a dose of reality? And I bring this up because I had a, a podcast guest a while ago, who's a children's author, and she wrote like a book that did really well. And it was unintentionally about loss and fed it to kids in like a way more tall, I mean, you know, palatable, 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 palatable yeah. way. <laughs> and uh, I was just wondering, like there's conversations of kids, like when, when I was I was young when like my grandparents passed, and I feel like naturally we want to shelter the kids from that. But in my opinion, I don't have kids, so I don't know what the hell I'm talking about. But I feel like it is important to also give these kids, even though they're young, like a little bit of a in a light way, the dose of reality because I think that does strengthen them down the road as opposed to sheltering it from them. Right. And I feel like that sheltering kind of relates to what you're saying is allowing kids to feel. It's, it isn't like clearly kids cry all the time, but to really manage their emotions. And I don't know, I wonder how much of that affects the kids down the road. And it's like stuff like you and me maybe handling later in our lives because at a young age, we didn't let it go. Right. You know what I mean? So I don't even know if there was a question or a thought in there. No, no, I, 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 I do have a response for that. And as early as toddler years, because I know at that age, they're trying to find their voice and they're trying to, they're trying to regulate their emotions, but they don't know how. So there's going to be crying breakdowns if you take away their little crappy little toy that they get and God knows where. And for us, it's trash. But for them, it's like, you know, a 10-carat diamond. You know what I mean? So how, how do you regulate their emotions? You, 
you just talk to them and, and don't, don't put a wet blanket over their emotions. Don't try and curb them. Just say, listen, it's okay. You're okay to feel those emotions. I know you're not happy now, but this is normal. You're okay. You're, I'm here. You know, you just, you want to reassure them that it's okay to have a meltdown, but that you're not going anywhere. And when we, to answer your other thought or to respond to your other thought about death, our, my pug of many years passed away. Well, we put her down because she was very ill. And we had a frank conversation with my daughter, Marianne, who we said, you know, she's ill. She's going to go to heaven now. And some, you know, pe people die, animals die, and this is just the circle of life. And she's sad about it. She still mentions it, but she understands that that's a normal process. And, she, and if she says something, she says, oh, I understand. It's okay to be sad. And you just have to reassure them that it's okay. It's okay to feel that. And eventually that will run its course. That's beautiful. That's a, that's a, that's an experience that's probably going to stay with her for forever. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah. You can do the best you can. As parents, that, we're going to fuck up someone. It's guaranteed. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not a parent, but I fuck up my own life enough. It's just like, there you I'm, go. I got to do the best. We're going to do the best you can. And it's funny. It's interesting how that response you give to a child about loss and feelings, it's like the same thing we have to say to adults. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's very similar. It's like, it's okay. We're still telling adults the same thing. So that's why it's so important. I wonder if you instill that in your child young, later on we'll be way more malleable in handling our emotions because I feel like that's a very similar thing to say to an adult. It's okay. Like we said earlier, it's okay to feel. It's okay to feel like this and just let it let it out. It's all right. You're going to be okay. It's okay. So it's, uh, that's an interesting thought. But I um, mean, essentially we are all overgrown toddlers so Sam, we're all fucking kids we're yeah. all like we're all little babies yeah we just want to be heard and we want to be under heard and understood and that's it that's all we want and whether you have a solution or not let you know and i think we we curb that so much in our in our society with perfection and all this that abomination called social media that everybody is has to send out their their best like five seconds of their life to make everybody jealous that their life is perfect when their private whole life is probably in shambles. You know, it's, it's not a great example for our kids because I mean, at my age, I can see through it, but at 15, at 13, you don't know any better. Yeah. And that's what they live by. So how do you live an authentic life if you can't see through that? Yeah. It's like a, the, the common phrase, comparison is the thief of joy. And it's always so easy to compare and it's for mental health. Social media scares me as great. There's so many great benefits to it too, but you gotta, you gotta separate yourself and detach a little bit. I think that's what we all got to do in, in many ways. Roger, um, thank you for being your authentic self and sharing your story. <laughs> My pleasure. That, that's what it's all about. So I appreciate you sharing your insights and, you know, ad, ad, essentially admitting that, you know, I'm still, you're still figuring things out. Yeah. No matter what, how old you are, how young we are, we're always, we're always a work in progress, like you said. And it's, um, that's just what it is. As long as we're progressing, I think is the important part. Yeah. So thank you so much. Um, and if anyone doesn't want to buy or sell a house with me, I'm, I'm fine with you working with Roger. Let's put it that <laughs> way. He's, he's a class act, biggest, yeah. one of the biggest agents in the game. And I'm very happy that we got a time to sit and talk about anything other than houses. So oh, thank you. Thanks I appreciate you, Roger. Appreciate I don't know if there's any last minute bombs that you want to say. Or are you good? Uh, you know, just let go and let God. <laughs> there we go. Let go, let go and let God. Yes. Oh, I never, I never, is it weird that I haven't heard that? Yeah. Just, you know, when you just don't, ha when you just don't know the answer, you just don't do just, 
put it in God's hands or your higher power, whatever it is, and just let it go. Just surrender. Just surrender. I've had a couple of those surrender moments, but sometimes it's like, I feel like I'm, I think it's just, sometimes to me, it's like, do I just, I think I just got to breathe. It's just like, I got to breathe, breathe, breathe. I feel like taking a deep breath goes a long way. And that's how I feel like I can surrender sometimes. Yes. I feel like I find those moments to surrender, but I think you got to keep doing it. It's like deflating a balloon. You got to do it one time, deflate a little air, then it might come back, deflate a little air, it might come back, deflate a little air. And eventually like, okay. When I'm driving sometimes and I feel the anxiety and you know, especially being in real estate, the, it, you just feel like this volcano is about to erupt because all this anxiety and you just feel you're getting short of breath and you're going to like have a panic attack. I take a deep breath. I change the station to like meditative music and I will drive. I won't close my eyes, thank God, because, you know, I, I got to watch out for everybody on the road. <laughs> but <laughs> LA driving. I will just start taking deep breaths, holding it and letting it go. And it's like almost like a pseudo meditation, but like just doing some breath work. It really just kind of calms my amygdala they call it and just gets me out of that w warrior mode for a minute because you are ready to like snap and something's coming out but you can't let it happen you have to you know cut it off at the pass yeah i like that because I, i've been lately i feel like I've, I've never had too much trouble with anxiety but lately it's been like i've been feeling i've been feeling i feel like exactly how you just described it and i i feel like i have been doing the best job of doing that breathing and letting go and maybe doing a little more breath work i kind of get i feel like I've, okay on to the next thing maybe that'll help me out as opposed to just taking a second so that 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 has been helping me and i thank you for that reminder because it's kind of exactly what i fucking need right now maybe it's the coffee i'm having in my system too but i've been feeling those waves of anxiety more than i ever have and, and I, need, I need to breathing you know, is good medicine it really is but you got to do it regularly like anything anything if you want to get the rewards out of anything you have to do it regularly whether it's going to the gym reading, trying to make your psyche better, breathing and anxiety relief, whatever you do, you just have, to, it's, it's every day or every other day, just do it regularly. Otherwise there's, it's, there's no effect. Yeah. I mean, you go to the gym five days, seven days, seven days for a week and you don't have a six pack and people give up. It's like, wait, no, it, it takes time. So that's, that's good advice. And even too. when you get the six pack, you still got to keep yeah. going to maintain the six pack. <laughs> exactly. That's why we're a work in progress. And even if even the happiest people in the world have their days, so it's not going to be an eternal happiness. Life just ebbs and flows. And you got to be, I think you just get better and better at snapping out of it and getting back to where you want to be through practice and discipline and effort. So that's it. All right. Well, Roger, thank you so much. And that's a, a solid way to, to walk out of here, guys. Thank you for tuning in. The legend of Roger Perry continues. And <laughs> thank you for tuning in to another episode. Until next time, we out. <laughs>